Well, uh, welcome. Um, this is the interview we have today on behalf of uh, EFSAS with Mr. Afrasyab Khatak. He's joining us from Islamabad, Pakistan. Uh, Afrasyab Khatak is, uh, has been a politician. Currently, I, I believe he has, uh, in a country like Pakistan, he has no political ambitions anymore, but he has been a politician. He has been a senator in Pakistan. Apart from that, he has been the uh, chair of the Pakistan Human Rights Commission. Um, and he is also, of course, a human rights activist, but a lesser known side of his is that he is also a poet. Um, so Afra Sahib Khatak Sahib, thank you and welcome for, uh, at, at, at this interview with EFSAS. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And um, so, like I said to you before we started as well, is that while, of course, we are going to discuss contemporary issues, you are, a, you are, a, you are an expert on Afghan identity, politics in Afghanistan, politics in Pakistan, the Pashtun identity, the Taliban, the Pakistani military establishment, this all you, you are known to be the, 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 one of the foremost experts on, on this issue. Uh, but before we come there uh, of what is happening today in the region, um, from your perspective, and not only from your perspective in how you view politics of the region, but also from your personal perspective, um, how did we come here? Because uh, you have known, you have, you, have, you have struggled for decades for democracy in Pakistan. You have a personal connection to Afghanistan and to the Afghan and Pashtun identity. So before we come to what is happening today, we would actually like to know a little bit more about you as a politician, as an activist, as a writer, as a, po uh, as a poet. Uh, and from that perspective, maybe try to make sense of things that are happening now. So if you can... Explain a bit about your struggle, what you did, how you started, and how, how we ended up here. Thank you very much. Actually, I got uh, politicized uh, in 1968 in the great people's uprising against General Ayub Khan's martial law, uh, General Ayub Khan's di dictatorship. Uh, that was a time when uh, there was youth uprisings in different countries and uh, particularly uh, people with leftist, leftist ideas were uh, emerging at the scene. So uh, I joined Pakhtun Students Federation uh, in 1968 during that uh, uprising. Uh, and after that, I supported uh, National Awami Party, NAP, the foremost uh, leftist and democratic party in Pakistan. Uh, in 1950s, it came into being in 1950s, 1954. It was National Party. In 1957, it became National Awami Party. This was the party of uh, Khan Abdul Wali Khan. Party of Khan Abdul Wali Khan, led by Khan Abdul Wali Khan. So we, we supported that party in 1970 elections uh, that were held under General Yahya Khan's martial law. And then came 1971 uh, crisis. We supported the, the struggle of the people of Bangladesh we, we opposed military action against uh, the people of uh, uh, East Bengal. And uh, we, we, we demonstrated, we raised our voice. Our party was banned by General Yaya Khan. Then came, Mr. Bhutto came in power 
in January 1972, and he lifted ban from a party. A party uh, got into a coalition government uh, in two provinces of the country, Baluchistan and Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa province. But it could last only 10 months because uh, there were pressures, uh, Mr. Bhutto's government from the king of Iran, Raza Shah, uh, and uh, other pressures. So he uh, dissolved our government unconstitutionally. And we went to uh, agitate against uh, this decision. Our government in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa resigned in protest. And we went into prolonged uh, agitation. And then I, I, I was a student activist, but I went to uh, uh, prison. I was arrested more than once under Mr. Bhutto, sometimes for six months, sometimes for eight months. But uh, ultimately, in 1975, Mr. Bhutto banned our party. And uh, we, we were put uh, on trial. We were arraigned before a special uh, tribunal uh, for high treason. 55 leaders of National Army Party were arraigned before a special tribunal. I was one of the accused persons, the, along with Khan uh, Abdul Khan, uh, Ataullah Mengel, Kher Bakshmari, Ghosbakh Bizinjo, Gul Khan Nasir, uh, and many others. Uh, so uh, it, it was uh, close to two years that we were uh, arraigned before that tribunal. And Ziaul Haq uh, overthrew Mr. Bhutto, uh, and we were released by General Ziaul Haq in the hope that we will keep on opposing <laughs> Mr. Bhutto. Uh, but we, of course, uh, had no personal problem with Mr. Bhutto. Uh, so we opposed martial law of General Ziaul Haq. So I was arrested again, and for, for uh, almost three years, I was in prison under Ziaul Haq. In uh, 1980, uh, when I was released uh, in Baluchistan from a prison, notorious prison, much prison, much, uh, I, I was told by a civil bureaucrat that uh, I was under threat and I should either uh, quit politics or quit the country, or at least quit the country for uh, the time when uh, there's martial law. So uh, I decided to go to Afghanistan because that was the only country where we could go without passport. I mean, just crossing the uh, federally administered tribal area by foot, we could enter Afghanistan. And I knew uh, these Afghan leaders uh, of People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. We were uh, good friends in the 1970s. I knew, uh, particularly knew uh, Dr. Najibullah, uh, the late uh, president of Afghanistan and many others uh, in that party. So we went to, I went to Kabul uh, in the hope that Ziaul Haq will hold elections and I'll come back uh, after three, four months. But then elections were not held. For eight and a half years, I had to stay put in Kabul. And there were many Pakistanis, People's Party leaders, uh, Benazir Bhutto's brothers, Murtaza and Shah Nawaz were there. Khair Bakshmari came to Kabul along with 15,000 Baloch followers. Uh, Ajmal Khatak was already there. And so, so what, uh, we, we, we had a good uh, number of Pakistanis opposed to Ziaulak's martial law. Uh, when Benazir Bhutto came in power in 1988, she declared that the exiles can come back. So I, along with some other uh, Pashtun uh, exile leaders, I, we, we came back to Pakistan. We rejoined uh, ANP, Awami National Party. It was uh, a new party, uh, a continuation of the old party, but a new, under a new name. So I, I joined there, 
And after that, I uh, also joined the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. We, but in, in Pakistan, we uh, faced uh, a, a, a democracy which was controlled by generals. It, it, it is a hybrid system, uh, hybrid uh, system after that. So, so the civilian governments could not really complete their uh, term and uh, there were struggles for democracy. Uh, and I was part of uh, struggle for human rights, uh, democracy in Pakistan and peace with India. I also joined uh, Pakistan uh, India People's Forum for Peace and Democracy and remained uh, its uh, uh, president of its Pakistani chapter for many years. So th this was most of the activities that I uh, was uh, busy in and you talk about your um, your, your struggle for for democracy and you were also part of the uh, you, you were actually at the end you you became chairman of the human rights commission of pakistan uh, any any incidents or cases on which you which still are in your mind on which you worked during that time yes yes uh, actually uh, uh, I was invited to join this organization by Ms. Asma Jahangir. Mm -hmm. We were we became very good friends, very close friends, and I worked with her. And we faced uh, difficult uh, uh, challenges. Uh, I remember uh, Akbar Bukti, Nawab Akbar Bukti, uh, when uh, before his death, uh, Asma Jahangir and myself we went uh, in a delegation. Uh, for fact finding in uh, Bukti area of Balochistan. Uh, in the evening, we, when we were entering Balochistan, our uh, car was fired upon. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I mean, the effort was to uh, send us back, but we refused to go back. We spent the night uh, near the road. And the next morning, we went to uh, the area. We, Akbar Bukti was not at his home, he had uh, fled his home to a far flung place. And he invited us to visit him there. And both of us went to see him. It, it was a few days before his death, before he was killed by army in a military operation. So we, we met him under difficult conditions. <laughs> but you see, there, there were many other things. And when I became Senator in 2009, March 2009, I became uh, chairperson of the Senate's Committee on the Human Rights. And then I tackled very serious uh, issues as chairperson of the Senate Human Rights Committee. And uh, in uh, 2013, 2014, we worked on a law uh, to, uh, we proposed uh, to the Senate that there should be a law for uh, the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, because we thought it was involved in this uh, enforced disappearances in the country. Uh, of, of course, we were able to uh, pass the recommendation by the Senate, but the law did not uh, come into being. It was ne never framed because as I put pressure on political parties and they did not do it. So th there were certain things in human rights uh, area in, in Pakistan uh, that uh, are still unresolved. So how uh, you, you just you, you talked about two cases, which was one meeting uh, Nawab Akbar Bukti before he died and he died afterwards. Then you talked about a law which would, uh, you know, which would hold the ISI accountable in some ways. Those are, of course, cases you're saying which could not materialize. Do you also, 
remember a few cases where you did meet success? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, I, I, uh, I worked very uh, hard for uh, Afghan refugees mm -hmm. in Pakistan. They were, uh, you see, Pakistan is not signatory to international conventions and refugees. And Pakistan doesn't have any law internally also. So these refugees were used uh, in this political engineering in Afghanistan. When Pakistan doesn't have good relations with the government in uh, Afghanistan, they push these refugees back. Or sometimes, for example, when Taliban come into power, uh, they push refugees to go to show that there is normalcy in Afghanistan. So they, they deal it on a political basis. Uh, th there's a book, very interesting book, uh, and I think it's available. There's a soft copy on, uh, on the internet. Uh, from Mahajir to Mujahid. Hmm. Mahajir uh, in our languages is refugee and Mujahid is holy warrior. So, so how these refugees were turned into holy warriors, this book describes it. It is written by Professor Fazal Rahim Marwat and I have written the forward of that book. So uh, we, we have uh, discussed in detail this refugee problem. This was also, so I was able at times to at least uh, reduce pressure on refugees. Uh, under Musharraf, for example, I remember under Musharraf, they were, there was a lot of pressure on them. They were uh, thrown uh, across the border uh, by police. They were taken in cars and lorries with, without their consent. Uh, so, but, but we protested and we were able to uh, prevail on the government to stop that practice. And you also, uh, perhaps not many people know, you were also married in, in, in Kabul, in Afghanistan? Yes, yes. Uh, actually, uh, when our stay prolonged, uh, I was not alone in marrying in Afghanistan. Actually, it was started by uh, Benazir's uh, brothers. Murtaza and Chanawas. They, the two of them, uh, two brothers, they married two sisters, uh, Fauzia and Rihanna. Uh, and I participated in their uh, marriage. Uh, it was very limited because they were, uh, uh, they, they had security problems. So there were three Pakistanis and I was one of them. Uh, we spent the night uh, together uh, in their marriage. And after some time, I also married in Afghanistan. Uh, my wife is from uh, eastern uh, part of Afghanistan, from the part Kunar province of Afghanistan. Yes, and uh, like you said, uh, it's uh, it's very uh, sometimes puzzling. Of course, you you started off with your political career, and then you also became an activist, a human rights activist. Where does the poet come in? Well, it, it was from very childhood. Uh, my grandfather uh, from mother's side was a literary person. Uh, he was uh, uh, a good friend of uh, poet Iqbal, mm -hmm. a very close friend. Uh, and uh, he, he knew Persian also. Uh, and he was the one who gave me this name of Rasia. It is from uh, the famous uh, epic, uh, Persian epic Shahnama. The story of the kings by Firdausi. Uh, so uh, my, my grandfather used to uh, uh, recite poetry, and I before I went to school, I, I was very very small. I mean, as a kid, I, I remembered uh, 
poetry, but without understanding the meaning. So, so this is how it started. And uh, Pashto was my mother tongue. Pashto is my mother tongue. Uh, but of course, I learned Urdu in school and college. And then I learned English. Uh, Persian, I was always interested in. Uh, so uh, I, I learned some Persian in school, but uh, speaking and uh, reading and writing, I picked up in Kabul uh, during my stay there uh, for eight and a half years. Because, because in 1975, uh, 1975 I, I remember when I visited uh, Kabul for uh, two and a half months, uh, a brief visit. Uh, at the end of my visit, I was invited for a meeting by President Muhammad Daud Khan. He was a president at that time. He couldn't speak Pashto. It was uh, very ironic because he was uh, very famous for supporting uh, the Pashto cause. Uh, but but he, uh, he said that uh, uh, before we started our conversation, he said he will slowly speak in Persian and uh, we should speak slowly in Pashto. At that time, I couldn't speak Persian. I, of course, I understood but I couldn't speak. But, but during my stay in Kabul, then I picked up uh, Persian. Now I can speak, read, and write uh, Persian also. And how much of this uh, poet was influenced by your time in jail with people like Habib Jaleb, Faz Ahmed Faz, and other poets of uh, of, of Pakistan? Great poets in Pakistan. Yes, yes. Actually, uh, even this Pashtun nationalist movement was full of poets. Ajmal Khatak, who was my mentor and uh, like my teacher, he was also a very outstanding Pashto poet. Ghani Khan was, of course, my guru. <laughs> uh, Abdul Ghaffar Khan's eldest son, uh, who studied in Shantinaketan, uh, Tagore School in Calcutta. He had also studied uh, in United Kingdom, UK, and uh, United States. But after his return from uh, US in 1933 or 34, he went to Delhi because his father was in prison. Their property was confiscated by British colonial rulers. Uh, so he had no money and nothing. So he stayed with Nehru's. Uh, Pandit Jawala Nehru uh, uh, put him along with Indira Gandhi in uh, Shantinaketan. So when he came, he, he was uh, uh, a great scholar, a man of encyclopedic knowledge. Uh, over the years, uh, I always learned from him. Uh, and he was also a great poet, one of great Pashto poets. But then in, uh, in movement in Pakistan, I met Habib Jalib, you know, Shaire Awam, people's poet. Uh, his poetry is famous for resistance. Even the, in these days, I mean, the last few years, he has become very popular in India also. <laughs> uh, his poems are recited by uh, agitations in, by Indian youth. Hmm. Uh, but Fez, of course, I knew him. I had the honor of knowing him. Uh, in prison, we had uh, Gulhan Nasir, the most outstanding Baloch poet of Balochi language. Uh, he is so far the most outstanding. Uh, so, so we had, uh, I was in good company and uh, I could read poetry, I could recite poetry. We had uh, poetry recitation sessions. So, so it was a very conducive atmosphere. Okay. No, that, it's, it's, it's very interesting to hear uh, these, these, these uh, you know, these connections, of course, of the leftist people in Pakistan, and then poets who joined, of course, the leftist movement or vice versa. Uh, you also talked about you being 
the chairperson of an institution which was working for better or friendly relations with India. Um, why do you think, because uh, why do you think Pakistan should have friendly relations with India? Why do you think? Yes, you see, many of us were of the view that uh, as long as we have hostile relations with India, it's very difficult to establish democracy in Pakistan because this anti-Indianism is part of the militaristic ideology uh, which has imposed authoritarianism on Pakistan for long years. Mm. Uh, every martial law that comes in Pakistan, imposed in Pakistan, uh, has the slogan of uh, fighting with India. So we thought that uh, uh, by normalizing relations with India, we will be able to uh, reduce an atmosphere, or shape an atmosphere, which will be more conducive for democratic dispensation in Pakistan. The same is true uh, of our relation with Afghanistan. So I think uh, peace and democracy in Pakistan are two sides of the same coin. So, so you, you believe that friendly relations with India are far and uh, first and foremost uh, in the interest of Pakistan itself? Yes, of course. I'm very confident. Uh, I believe that, uh, you see, Pakistan's major problem has been uh, its expenditure on the army. You see, uh, uh, during partition, uh, Pakistan uh, got a smaller part of the resources of uh, Indian subcontinent. Yeah, but it got uh, more than 30% of the army, which was too big for Pakistan. And this has been a great problem for Pakistan, this uh, non-productive expenditure. Uh, it, it, it has, you see, arrested Pakistan's uh, economic development, social development, and political development. So we believe that uh, for Pakistan uh, to come to geo-economic and grow out of geo-strategic, uh, is very important for democratization of Pakistani state and society. And, and the militarization has given birth to so many problems. The militancy that you see around, this religious extremism, these are uh, the product of uh, unbridled uh, militarization over the years. And very, very interesting, you note that during partition, of course, Pakistan got a certain percentage of land, and I believe uh, it was 33% of the army which they got, which was too big for the uh, for the country. But uh, and and why do you think that the army, apart from anti-Indianism, as you call it, why do you think the army succeeded in you know as as some would call it that every country has an army and the Pakistani army has a country. Why do you think it succeeded for? Now it's been 75 years and it's still very firmly sitting in its saddle. How, how come that they succeeded for so many years and are still succeeding in holding this, uh, this country hostage to their institutional interests? Actually, in Pakistan, uh, the state that we got from colonial uh, rulers, uh, bureaucracy was the older part, more mature part of the state system. Uh, it was far older than, for example, elected institutions. Parliament came very late. Assemblies, provincial assemblies came only in mid-1930s. Uh, 
so, uh, but this army and civil bureaucracy were the older part of the state system. Then we, uh, this was part of uh, Indian subcontinent, which was socially uh, backward, socioeconomic terms, it was backward, feudalism. So uh, the, the landed gentry and uh, this uh, colonial uh, bureaucracy, they formed an unholy alliance against uh, people's power, against people's uh, rule. Uh, so that also was a factor. Uh, but as long as we had Bangladesh, Bengalis, uh, Bengalis, uh, our Bengali friends and comrades, they were very strong contingent of democracy. Mm. So the resistance for, against this authoritarianism was quite strong. Uh, after the freedom of uh, Bangladesh, uh, of course, uh, things changed, the balance of forces changed. Mm. Uh, Mr. Bhutto was the most outstanding leader with a popular base in the country, he was executed uh, to, to send a lesson <laughs> to civilian uh, rulers or civilian leaders uh, that they can't rule uh, uh, only by people's support. I, I mean, they have to look towards establishment and uh, the military establishment in particular uh, to accommodate their interests. So this is how the hybrid system started from the uh, And I think this is also shaped our Afghan policy, Pakistan's Afghan policy, is the product of this uh, uh, military mindset. And you, you talk, you talk about Zayul Haq. Uh, do you think that the rapid Islamization of Pakistan started with Zayul Haq, or was it there already earlier? You see, uh, first of all, uh, Zayul Haq was not alone in this. Mm -hmm. In military, there was uh, a group which really thought that uh, Bengal, uh, according to them, seceded because it was not uh, properly Islamized. Mm. So this, I mean, this was the wrong lesson that they learned from uh, the independence of Bangladesh. Instead of saying that because Pakistan was not able to implement federal democratic system, which could have empowered Bengali people and included them in Pakistani state and society so that they, they would have been part of the country. But they, they uh, on the other hand, they, they thought because they were not properly Islamized. This was, uh, so Ziaullah was not alone in this. This was for, secondly, you see, for martial law uh, and for abrogation of the 1973 constitution, Islam came very handy. This religious slogan uh, to exploit uh, the uh, religious feelings of the uh, people of Pakistan and to justify military dictatorship, this despotism uh, was justified by, uh, in the name of Islam. Uh, and you see Ziaul Haq, the referendum that uh, Ziaul Haq held for uh, his presidency, the question was, do you uh, believe uh, that uh, Islam should be uh, the main principle of uh, power or state in his, uh, Pakistan? This was the question. If you say yes, then you are voting for Ziaul Haq. You see, this was this, this was how the and you see the, the other things the the parliamentary system was distorted into a presidential system. The federal system was deformed into a unitary system in the name of Islam. So you see, the, the it was part of political engineering. But I think a very important aspect of this militarization is Pakistan's Afghan policy. This is not really uh, very well known because it is not very uh, widely discussed. Uh, 
You see, Mr. Bhutto wrote, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto wrote his last book uh, in Rawalpindi jail before his execution in April 1979. He wrote this book. He used to write uh, on loose papers, uh, pretending that he was writing a statement for the court. But his lawyer, uh, uh, Yaya Bakhtiar, Mr. Yaya Bakhtiar, would smuggle it out uh, and would uh, put it with himself. And it was first published in India. The, the book, the title of the book was, If I Am Assassinated. Mm -hmm, yeah. uh, but now, now it's available in Pakistan and not only in English. Bhutto wrote it in English, but it's available in other languages also. Mr. Bhutto in that book says that when he was foreign minister with General Ayub Khan in 1960s, whenever they would meet Germans, Ayub Khan would say, our common traditions, our common values. Mr. Bhutto would be surprised. He was Sindhi, and Sindhis are not uh, very widely represented in the armed forces, neither in pre-partition India nor in Pakistan as an independent country. Uh, they, they are not. So he, he was surprised. But then on one occasion, Ayub Khan was more explicit. He said, we are martial races. And Mr. Bhutto immediately got the point. He was a very intelligent man, a very well-educated person. So he, he was reminded of Prussia, uh, the state before Germany. He says uh, Prussia had built a big army for Napoleonic wars. But once those wars were over, the Prussians did not know what to do with this big army. Mm -hmm. He says they had three options. The first option was to expand the country so that a big country could afford a big army. The second option was to reduce the strength of the army so that it is affordable and according to the, uh, in proportion with the resources of the country. And the third was to keep the status quo and let the country crumble under the burden of a big army. He says the Prussians went ultimately for the first option. In 1871, under Bismarck, they expanded and created Germany. Their problem was resolved. Bhutto says we have a similar problem at our hands. But unfortunately, he says 100 years after Bismarck, in 1971, our country got disintegrated. We lost uh, half of the country. So our problem aggravated further. It was all, always there, but it aggravated further. So he says, let's examine these Prussian options for Pakistan. Expansion of the country. Mr. Bhutto says this is not doable. This is not age for expansion and particularly for the country of the size and resources of Pakistan and with the fresh country, new country, without a long history or identity, it is not possible. So he says the second option, reducing the strength of the army, Bhutto says anybody who will insist on this will be hanged. So this is also not doable, not practical. So he concludes that Pakistan is condemned to have this third option, to keep the status quo and let the country crumble under the burden of a big army. Mm -hmm. This is uh, what Mr. Bhutto wrote in spring 1979 before he was executed. After him, had he been, I mean, after uh, uh, his death, there were so many developments that were uh, that would have been surprising for Mr. Bhutto if he had been alive. Because his generals actually went for the first option, expansion. Okay, yeah. And this strategic depth in Afghanistan 
is actually uh, a policy of expansion. It is an euphemism to describe uh, expansion uh, in a uh, diplomatic way. So uh, Pakistan, it's a very important project for Pakistan. It is uh, as important for Pakistani military as the nuclear project was, not, not less than that. So, so, so that's why after Ziaul Haq, in the last four decades, many things have changed, but this policy has not changed. Actually, Pakistani uh, army or its intelligence agencies is the most determined player in this Afghan conflict to implement this policy. So they first launched Afghan Mujahideen. Uh, they were sent, uh, a government was made in Pakistan. Uh, the government went uh, to Afghanistan, it failed to take off. And there was anarchy. Warlords started fighting against each other. And Taliban came into being. And I wouldn't say that Pakistani uh, intelligence set and created this group, but Pakistani, uh, this I know that Pakistani intelligence pounced at them immediately and adopted them. Uh, before that, Pakistan used to patronize Gulbuddin Hikmatyar's Hizbi Islami. But during the uh, civil war in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan uh, gave up on Gulbuddin, Hikmatyar's Hizb Islami, and adopted Taliban. After that, Pakistan and Taliban were, uh, worked together. But you see, Taliban's project is uh, a very systematic thing. It's, it's not just a military machine. It is mainly a military machine. There is no doubt about that. Uh, a very uh, uh, strong military machine, uh, very uh, well experienced in war of attrition. Uh, but apart from that, uh, it is also a war and identity. Because you see, these uh, uh, young people, uh, they, they are from Afghan refugee families in Pakistan. Uh, who are... What do you mean? Yes, yes. Who, who are living in Pakistan for the last four, 40 years. Uh, you see, absolute majority of these young people are trained in religious seminaries in Pakistan. According to official figure, there are uh, 36,000 religious seminaries. In Pakistan. But, in Pakistan. But some people say they, they can be like 50,000. And most of them were created for this Afghan Jihad. And they have this Middle Eastern extremist ideologies, uh, Wahhabism, uh, Salafism and Takfirism. Takfirism is uh, to challenge even the Muslimhood of the Muslims, saying that they are not good Muslims and they can be killed for that. Yeah. So you see these ideologies, so, so young people are brainwashed uh, in these religious seminaries and these Afghan boys are brainwashed. So you see, in a way, Pakistani generals along with some religious party, Jamaat Islami was their close ally, and uh, this Muslim Brotherhood from the Middle East, they also worked with uh, Pakistani army in this Afghan Jihad. So you see, they, they tempered with Afghan identity. Okay, one, one second, just to get you, uh, I understand you, but just for the viewers as well, because what you were saying, just to clarify that, is that the Afghan refugees, who were in refugee camps in mostly Peshawar, but in Pakistan, uh, that the Pakistani army recruited them and enrolled them in the thousands of madrasas in Pakistan in order to brainwash them with Wahhabi uh, ideology. 
Yes. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, Wahhabi, Diobandi, and other uh, extremist ideologies. And uh, the book that I mentioned uh, gives give details of this process, this from Mahajir to Mujahid. Mm -hmm. You see, but just to clarify, Pakistan was not alone in this. Uh, for example, US also initially uh, supported this project. Uh, Nebraska University created a syllabus uh, for curriculum for uh, Afghan refugee schools. And it was very militant curriculum. Uh, even in maths question, it would go like uh, you know, four Kalashnikov plus five Kalashnikov is equal to nine Kalashnikov. There was a question like, if you fire a bullet from this distance with a Kalashnikov, how many seconds will it take? Yes, yes. So, so these things, so, so US also was part of this. Then uh, the Arab countries also uh, supported this project. Dollar or petrodollar went together into in this project. And that's why these, this huge network of religious seminaries could work. Even it's working even now. You see, in Pakistan has promised many times to reform it, but they have not. Because if had they reformed it, I mean, Taliban would not have occupied Kabul this time around. So, so uh, my, I was coming to the identity question, which is very important. You see, uh, Afghans uh, have uh, converted to Islam 1,000 years ago uh, under Mahmoud of Ghazna's invasion of uh, this region. Uh, before that, people were Hindus. Before that, they were Buddhists. At some stage, they might have been Zoroastrians. Uh, but uh, Mahmoud of Ghazna's uh, uh, invasion converted them into Islam, and majority of uh, the people here have been uh, Muslim, so Afghan Muslims identity, or Pashtun Muslim has been the identity. Now, these guys, uh, Pakistani generals and these religious uh, extremists, they worked on this identity and they exaggerated this Muslim part of the identity, not for the love of Islam, but to weaken the Afghan part or the Pashtun part. You, you call it in your articles, you call it, this was done to deconstruct Afghan identity. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll explain, I mean, uh, as to how, how was it practiced? Mm -hmm. But this is how they started. Uh, theoretically, I mean, they, uh, they, they, they tempered with this identity uh, uh, definition. Uh, and the Afghan part was weakened by exaggeration of the religious part of the identity. So when Taliban entered Kabul in September 1996, what were the six or seven major steps that they took after taking over Kabul? They the first thing they changed the name of Radio Kabul, it became Vice of Sharia. Now, Islamabad Radio is not Vice of Sharia. Radio Tehran is also not Vice of Sharia. Even Saudi Radio is not Vice of Sharia. But Radio Kabul became Vice of Sharia. Afghan national anthem was banned. Afghan national flag was banned. Nowruz, yeah. 5,000 years old festival, which is celebrated throughout Central Asia and Iran and Afghanistan, it was banned. Jirga, the most important Pashtun social institutions, Jirga. I mean, you can't think of Pashtun identity without Jirga. But they said, no, no, in Islam, there are no, in Sharia, you can't have Jirgas. They killed, they murdered Dr. Najibullah. Uh, the Afghan president who was prepared for peace and had worked very hard for peace and had resigned for peace and had, uh, you see, very consistently 
uh, work on politics of nation reconciliation uh, and peace for Afghanistan. But he was a very brave, uh, energetic, uh, uh, outstanding Afghan leader. He was similarly Buddha uh, uh, statue in Bamiyan was demolished. You see, no, nobody was, was worshiping Buddha statue. <laughs> it was a national monument uh, representing Gandahara uh, civilization. But you see, everything that represented Afghanhood was attacked. It was not a coincidence. They were programmed for it. They had uh, software in them for doing this. And, and you see, this time around again, you see, it, it, they're very consistent with this. They went to uh, Kabul this time round. They, they uh, banned this flag, Afghan national flag. Those who carry this flag are attacked. You say, well, is it an enemy flag? It, it represents Afghan identity. And then you see, uh, recently they have renamed their military corps. It's very uh, ironic that Pakistan army, Pakistan army named their missiles after Hori and Abdali Afghan heroes. But, but Afghans, uh, you see, changed the name of their military uh, garrisons uh, and they Arabized them. The basic purpose is to de-Afghanize, to deconstruct Afghan identity. And for Pakistan to uh, transform Afghanistan into an appendage, uh, into a sort of area which is run by, uh, administered by Pakistan, it is important to deconstruct this identity. And I must say that uh, in the 90s, the same policy under Ziaul Haq, uh, not Ziaul Haq, Ziaul Haq was, uh, he died in 1988, but the followers of Ziaul Haq extended the same policy to Kashmir. Yeah, uh, I was actually coming there, a little bit moving from Afghanistan, that it sounds very familiar, what you're saying, uh, because of the reasons that uh, Kashmir, for example, or especially the Kashmir Valley, the majority of the people became Muslim there 500 years ago. And I'm reminded of, um, I'm actually reminded of a saying of Emperor Jangir, the, the Mughal emperor who visited Kashmir during his reign. And he basically said that, um, I do not understand what kind of Muslims live in Kashmir. There appears to be no difference between them and the Kashmiri Hindus uh, to the extent that they celebrate each other's feasts together or each other's festivals together. Um, and so, so you link this, 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 uh, this deconstructing of identity because in Kashmir also we heard slogans in the '90s that you're first a Muslim. The, this is an Islamic uh, caliphate. At that time, they used to say Nizam Mustafa, the rule of the Prophet. Um, so you you see this being carried forward into Kashmir as well. And and, yes. that is, and, the, and and that is where you make the link that uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto might be yes. surprised that the yes. army went for the first option, which is expansion. Exactly. Uh, I mean, Kashmir is uh, the other dimension of the strategic depth. Okay. Uh, you see, it is it is like uh, uh, you see like. like uh, uh, in Germany, they used to speak of uh, Lebensraum, uh, space for <laughs> living. You, know, you see, countries have been doing this. Uh, people have been doing this for, to justify expansion. Hmm. So, in, in, in Kashmir, they have been busy with it for, for, for 30 years. 
uh, and in Afghanistan, they have been busy for 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 much much longer. And yes. you know, you talk about, and this is a, a not not for our understanding, but just for the viewers' understanding, because this is a term, of course, used in um, academics and in research and in politics a lot. You and other analysts keep talking about strategic depth, strategic depth, which of the Pakistani military establishment of the deep state of the intelligence agencies. What do you mean by the strategic depth? What does this strategic depth mean? You see, the strategic depth is actually uh, to hegemonize Afghanistan. Uh, and for all practical purposes, uh, uh, li li like the Britishers at some time in, in late 19th century, the Britishers uh, not only divided Afghanistan and uh, pulled part of Afghanistan out of it, and uh, put it into Indian subcontinent, but they also uh, control the foreign policy and security policy of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see our, our, our bureaucracy uh, that we have inherited from British period uh, uh, is very keen on these things. Mm -hmm. So they, they sort of uh, sort of protectorate Afghanistan becoming Pakistan's protectorate, an appendage. Uh, this, this, this tribal area in Pakistan expanding to, uh, let's say, deep into Afghanistan. So th this has been, uh, for all political purposes, the purpose of this strategic depth. Although uh, they have been denying uh, this in recent years, they say, no, 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 not anymore. We don't uh, uh, pursue this policy. But uh, you see, Taliban is an instrument of this policy. Taliban is the most important instrument of this policy. And, and you say, you, you've written this, you say that um, Taliban is Pakistan, Pakistani military establishment's project, um, where you say, uh, where you again talk about the Pashtun identity. Uh, where do you see this project of the Pakistani military establishment going today, as of today? And where do you see Pashtun identity in this conundra? You see, I, I say this because uh, in recent years, when I was heading uh, uh, the major Pashtun party in Pakistan, uh, it's, I, I was its provincial head. I was heading its provincial chapter uh, for six years. Uh, you see, more than 800 of our activists were killed by Taliban. This party is a nonviolent party. It, it's, it doesn't uh, believe in uh, violence. The ANP. Uh, ANP, yeah. Awami National Party. I, I uh, headed it in Pashtunhua province for six years. Yeah. When it was in, in power, it was ruling the, the province. We were attacked. Uh, I, I survived a suicide attack. Many of our uh, comrades died, uh, our uh, assembly members, parliamentarians, activists. So you see, wh why, why would Taliban attack people on this side of the border? You see, basically, Taliban project is aimed to sort of uh, project Pashtuns as uh, tribal warriors and not political people. Uh, and uh, so, so, so let the world uh, give uh, the, uh, Pakistan army the role to sort of manage them, etc. But you see, this is a bad policy for Pakistan. This is a suicidal policy. Ultimately, uh, it is bad for Pakistan because it has militarized Pakistan to an extent where Pakistan is finding it very difficult 
to compete in terms of economic development in the region and in the world. And the present economic crisis that we see is mostly because uh, of this policy of militarization. And this militarization also bred, you see, different types of religious militancies. Recently, the one that uh, marched in Islamabad uh, this, this month, during the, this, this very month, TLP. Uh, TLP. So, so you see, different brands have uh, mushroomed in Pakistan, and most of them are for, can be connected with these religious seminaries, uh, which Pakistani state uh, has re refused to uh, reform or control or uh, sort of uh, reform them to an extent. I mean, no one is opposed to uh, education of religion. I mean, uh, in every country, is part of the syllabus, and it should be taught here. When we have no problem with that. But you see, uh, just to brainwash stu uh, students into suicide bombers uh, is really objectionable. That's something that is bad for Pakistan. Uh, so uh, Pakistan has great potential for economic development. Uh, it could have become a regional economic power had it uh, sort of recognized Afghanistan as an independent uh, neighborly country. Uh, Pakistan could have uh, reached a Central Asian market through Afghanistan. Uh, and it could have, uh, you see, strengthened Pakistan economically. Uh, but, but unfortunately, this policy uh, of Talibanization or Taliban project has hindered Pakistan's uh, efforts. You see, uh, let me just give you a very uh, interesting example. Three of uh, Afghan neighbors from the north and west have built rail tracks with Afghanistan in the last few years. You see, uh, the Uz Uzbek train from Uzbekistan enters Mazar-Sharif city. It's, it's a functioning railway system. Mm -hmm. uh, Iranian railway has re recently reached Herat province. Iranian railway. Railway from Turkmenistan has reached uh, uh, Afghan border. But you see, Pakistan has not built even uh, uh, 10 meters of railway <laughs> Uh, Pakistan, you see, there, there's a road between Khyber Pass, uh, between Peshawar and Turkham, through the Khyber Pass. It's 40 miles. In 1992, Pakistan declared when Mujahideen uh, were forming their government, Pakistan declared that it will be dualized. Mm -hmm. 1992. It's almost three decades. It is still not even dualized, let alone. So you see, because economic development is not the priority. The priority is strategic, to have uh, control uh, over Afghanistan, to have more Taliban, and to expand uh, militarily. You see, so this is a suicidal policy. Uh, Pakistan is so dependent on foreign loans, dependent on IMF, uh, and so many other things. Uh, and in a number of occasions, Pakistan military leaders have also claimed that they have given up on this policy, but every time, it uh, it is discovered in practice that they have not. And and when you say this this deconstructing the Pashtun and the Afghan identity, so in essence, it, it is an anti-Pashtun, anti-Afghan uh, project. Now that the Taliban has walked into Kabul and has taken over Afghanistan, uh, is this the did they succeed? Is this the final development of this? Uh, Taliban project of the Pakistani military establishment and where do you see the Afghan Pashtun identity going from here? 
You see, Taliban could uh, capture Kabul. They could uh, get to Kabul because there was shift in international politics. Mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, Americans were not averse to the idea of injecting Taliban into Afghan system uh, because they have problems with China, uh, rising China as economic power. So I think uh, that, 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 is, uh, that is how they, they could enter there. But you see, they, I don't think they can really rule Afghanistan. You see, it's, it's a military machine, basically. It's not uh, 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 geared, it's not really designed uh, as political party. It's not a political party. I used to say in seminars during last uh, 10, 15 years, I've been saying this, that it is uh, a perpetual IRA without Shen Fin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People in Europe would probably understand it uh, easily. Uh, you see, so, so they are perpetually fighting. They have they, the only type of governance that they know is militant governance. You see, this militia uh, sort of uh, behaves like it is a state. In, in 1990s, they ruled Afghanistan. Uh, they captured Kabul in 1996. Up till September 11, they ruled uh, Afghanistan, most of Afghanistan. But you see, there was no constitution. Yeah. Even now, there is uh, no even even there's a constitution not even mentioned. So this Malaysia is parliament, this Taliban Malaysia is parliament. It is judiciary, it is executive. Hmm. Uh, there is no police. <laughs> so these uh, gun-wielding Taliban are state by themselves. So, so I, I, I am confident that Afghan people will rise against them. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I, I know Afghanistan a little bit. Uh, so I don't know Afghan history, Afghan politics, Afghan culture. I, I think uh, Afghans will, uh, they cannot, any people would have uh, uh, resisted against uh, such a militant governance, which does not provide any right, uh, any right, uh, because there is no law, no constitution. You, you, you make a very interesting point is you've met, you've made that in your, in your articles as well. If I understand correctly, um, you make a point which, in essence means that the US at some point of time has sacrificed Afghanistan uh, in order to counter China and its BRI investments and its expansion. So the, in uh, saying that a stable Afghanistan was, was working in favor of the Chinese and an unstable Afghanistan would counter that. So the Americans sacrificed the Afghan and the Afghan Afghanistan and the Afghan people uh, in order to counter the Chinese. Is that is that is that, that the point? That is that is that is exactly what I want to say. You see, Mr. Khalilzad, Mr. Zalmay Khalilzad, Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, uh, in his briefing, I think it was June uh, when he was briefing uh, the, the Foreign Relations Committee uh, on the Doha deal. Uh, he was asked by uh, senators, uh, uh, congressmen, he was asked uh, as to uh, what was the position taken by China and Russia. Uh, Mr. Khalilzad says that China and Russia benefited by the stability that we brought to Afghanistan. They had problems uh, with uh, terrorism uh, emanating from Afghanistan, but when we stabilized Afghanistan, they benefited by it. And his words are, and they were free riders. Okay. And they were free riders. <laughs> you see, so 
uh, I, I, I believe it is uh, the new Cold War. Uh, it has come to our place. And the sad thing is that uh, in 1980s, uh, there was political polarization in Europe uh, between uh, NATO and Warsaw uh, pacts. But you see, uh, the uh, hot war was brought to our region. Uh, once again, uh, there may be tensions in East Asia between Japan uh, and uh, China, uh, this South China Sea countries and China, uh, Australian China. But you see, again, the hot war uh, is uh, brought here because there are structures uh, with very little money uh, and, and without uh, shedding their own blood or blood of the soldiers. You see, US now talking about uh, uh, strikes over horizon. Mm -hmm. You see the, these drone strikes. So they, they, they will be able to kill without getting killed. So you see, it's, it's, it's a very uh, serious uh, uh, threat to, to the uh, peace in our region, uh, this new Cold War. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, US, particularly after this 2008 recession, I believe uh, US revisited its policy and it decided to uh, sort of mainstream uh, Taliban uh, so that uh, Russia and China and Iran could also get some taste of uh, this instability. But, uh, you know, you, you make an interesting point. You say the hot war is always brought to our region. But isn't it all also true that the hot war is brought to that region because there is there are uh, actors um, who actually wait for that war to be brought in, 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 in the shape of these religious madrasas, the military establishment, these actors are, of course, interested in, in, in these wars being brought to their place because that is where they benefit. Yes, yes. There, and there is history to it. You see, these, these uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, dominated countries, particularly UK and uh, US for that matter, they have long experience in handling religious politics in their colonies, uh, in, middle, in the Middle East, in South Asia. You see this, this partition of India. What was it? It was, uh, according to Winston Churchill, it was a breakdown plan in which he thought uh, uh, Congress would get uh, south of India. And in the north, uh, British will have uh, its colony continuing with its military bases. This was the original plan of uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, they couldn't implement it just like that because of the consequences of the Second World War. But uh, you see, this was the original plan. And you see this, this Muslim belt starting from Xinjiang, uh, Central Asia, uh, then West Asia, Middle East, then uh, Turkey, then North Africa, this whole region. Now, what it needed was a detonator so that uh, it can be exploded against communism. And you see, they, 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 uh, I mean, uh, the way they use it against uh, Soviet communism in 1980s, uh, in a way, uh, this uh, strategy uh, was successful. But I, we, we thought after 9-11, some of us thought that probably they might have given up on this strategy, but now it seems they have not. And you... You mentioned Xinjiang. That, that was actually one of the questions I wanted to come to. There is, of course, this, this discourse going on that the Chinese, 
China is cozying up to the Taliban or is not cozying up to the Taliban. The Chinese have, of course, this, um, according to them, this issue in Xinjiang where they have put a lot of, actually, according to sources and independent verifiable sources, they have put almost a million Muslim Uyghurs in, 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 in concentration camps. Um, and now you have the Taliban in Afghanistan. So how worried are the Chinese that this could have a spillover effect to Xinjiang? Before that, I would just uh, uh, want to share with you uh, recently uh, in a lecture here in Islamabad, uh, in a lecture about Afghanistan, I said that seven countries were very uh, closely in touch with Taliban when they were entering Kabul. There were seven countries. Pakistan was first and foremost, of course. Then U uh, US, UK, China, Russia, Iran, and Qatar. These seven countries. I, I said, but they all seven have their own agendas. They, 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 their agendas do not converge. But everyone thought that they could use this situation against the other. So I, I, uh, uh, in Urdu, there is a term which has come from Persian originally. It say, uh, they talk about Gurg Ashti. Gurg Ashti. Gurg is wolf. Mm -hmm. uh, and Ashti is peace. Peace of the wolf, peace of the wolves. Mm -hmm. You see, when the wolves... Uh, 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 get in caves uh, during snowfall in uh, Kashmir, you know, because uh, it's the same as in Afghanistan. Uh, when there's snow fall and there is no food outside, so then they get stuck in a cave and they say, let's live in peace. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but then they get hungry. Uh, so they look at each other and they pounce at the weakest. <laughs> they eat it up and then they again declare we'll live in peace. So I, I said, I said, this is the seven countries supporting Taliban have similar uh, peace uh, of the wolves. And now we have seen Iran has already jumped out and uh, it has started supporting this uh, resistance uh, in the north. But in the case, coming back to Xinjiang, I think you see China is an authoritarian uh, state. It is one party uh, uh, state ruled by the Communist Party of China. And uh, it has its uh, system. Uh, uh, it, it is economically very uh, well de uh, developed. I have been to China and I've been to Xinjiang also. I've seen uh, Ramchi and uh, some, other, some other parts of uh, Xinjiang. Uh, it has developed quite a lot. I mean, it's socioeconomic development. But of course, they don't have the type of democracy that we uh, sort of uh, are used to uh, in our struggle or in our countries. Uh, but you see, those who talk of uh, these rights in Xinjiang, they, they're not speaking about uh, massive killing by Taliban in Afghanistan these days. Mm. I, I haven't seen much media focus on uh, Taliban. <laughs> so you see, uh, I, I, I'm very strong supporter of human rights and I really say that uh, maybe in Xinjiang, maybe anywhere else, I mean, people should have rights, individuals, because uh, in this day and age, uh, people should, should, should not be slaves. They should not be kept like uh, slaves. They should be uh, given uh, at least fundamental rights, the minimum international standard of rights. But you see, it should not be used uh, for political uh, purposes, uh, sort of pick and choose. 
uh, in one place, uh, human rights should be supported. In other places, they should not be. If, if there is a universal standard, it will be more successful. Even for countries like China, they will have to open up. Because uh, if it is universal, then, of course, who will be able to resist uh, this? Uh, so they, there are problems in China, yes. But uh, the way uh, uh, they're, uh, I mean, I, I'm really uh, uh, concerned about uh, the beginning of a new jihad. You see, this can turn into a new jihad. You see, they, they, these people, uh, Ta Taliban say we wouldn't let uh, uh, Al-Qaeda uh, or uh, Daesh or others to use Afghan soil. This is exactly what they used to say about Osama bin Laden yeah. in 1990s. But in 1990s, there were terrorist, terrorist attacks in four continents. Four continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, and American continent. Four uh, continent attacks that, that, were, uh, that could be traced back to Afghanistan, Taliban's Afghanistan. So now when they say they, they wouldn't let them uh, act, so what are they, these guys doing in Afghanistan? Are they there for some picnic? Yeah. What are they doing if, if they are not uh, pursuing their aims and objectives? So it is now, jihad. if yes, jihad. I mean to say, you see, they, they will they will pinprick Chinese. If Chinese come out after them, then they will say China has attacked, uh, invaded uh, the Islamic uh, Emirate of Afghanistan, and jihad is of course uh, the only. If she, Chinese do not, they will have to face this. This is this, but I'm not saying that it's happening tomorrow or it's this is what the Western countries would like to see. Uh, of, of course, China has good relations with Pakistan army and yeah, Pakistan where army. Do you, where do you see the Pakistani military establishment in this? Because they are in the middle and they have very good relationships with both of them. Yes, that is what we are uh, now uh, pointing out because our leaders, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, Badsha Khan in 1980s, Abdul Wali Khan, they used to say that this is a suicidal policy, don't pursue it. But these guys, Pakistani generals would say, no, no, we can do it and it's delivering. But you see now that we have reached a stage where Pakistani policy is entering into uh, a closed street. There, there's, no, uh, there's going to be no way out. You see, uh, Pakistani, uh, Pakistani policy has reached a point where it has to choose and no, none of the choices is in the interest of Pakistan. Because if it stands with China, Pakistan is so dependent on Western technology, Western education, Western financial resources, Western liquidities, the type of Pakistan has al almost ha uh, has an addiction of this Western grants, etc. Uh, Chinese have cash only in, in form of loans which are to be paid back with interest. So this, this choice is really not easy for uh, Pakistan. So you see, this is the wrong policy. Pakistan should have avoided uh, being uh, a patron of these militant organizations. Pakistan should have opted for uh, economic development, geoeconomics with Afghanistan and other Iran, other countries, China, even China. Pakistan should have engaged these countries in economic development cooperation. Do you see Pakistan, the military establishment, pursuing another double game, but then now with China, which they did with the US? They, they, they would love to, but I have my doubts 
that they can really play that because so the, the Chinese the players, would not be willing to play you see bo- both these powers are players with big data <laughs> they can see through many things so it, it, it's not playing with afghanistan or uh, with the uh, arab gulf countries or iran they, they're playing with china and us both of whom have resources to know as to what is happening mm-hmm. so now now coming to today's afghanistan as you know there is this uh, uh, around 90% almost all of the country has been taken over by the taliban they like you said they don't have a constitution yet human rights are of course trampled upon uh, women still uh, are, are again like in the 90s treated as second class citizens um there is a small resistant front building up in or was there or is there in panshir valley which where do you see this going which afghan community institution because let's not forget the taliban are still supported uh an an, an insurgent milit- militant terrorist organization can of course not live for 20 years and fight the mightiest power in this world unless and until they are supported by a state you have pointed out many times that that state is the pakistani military establishment so i assume they will be continued uh, getting support from them so which movement do you see building up against them you see pakistani military support will be with them i, I i'm sure but that wouldn't be really uh, that wouldn't be capable of uh, uh, keeping them in the uh, ruling uh, uh, seat because of uh, their unpopularity you, you see first of all you 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 saw millions of afghan would like to uh, f- go out of their country you see even today if the gates are open i mean a great majority of afghans will leave their country because they know they have experienced uh, taliban's rule in the past it's it's a, as i said it's a uh, occupation malaysia which uh, really has no laws no constitution nothing no state system so this will eventually they will not be able to rule they will not be able to first of all but but let me just to you say you ask me what is happening at the moment you see at the moment things are very bad because even among taliban even according to taliban's own standards uh, the the uh, extremist group of taliban uh, is dominant is dominating uh, their present uh, structure or the their present grip or rule over afghanistan you see uh, they there are two narratives at the moment among uh, taliban leadership one is the narrative that uh, their victory they they call it victory against the us as i said uh, they, i mean they don't uh, uh, recognize the fact that there may be some uh, international uh, politics and us might have its own interests but in any case they say we, we won the war we were victorious because the most important weapon that we use they say is suicide bombing mm. that is the most uh, unique uh, weapon that they uh, claim to have used in this war which has given them victory and they they say that uh, those who sacrificed their lives uh, in this uh, suicide bombing were the ones who wanted 
favor Sharia implemented in Afghanistan. So they would like to implement this. It is, uh, this view is upheld by Taliban Amir uh, Hebatullah Akhunzada, uh, their uh, leader, supreme leader, and Haqqani Network. The two of uh, the, the, I mean, the, the, both these uh, dominant groups, they are dominating. The other group, uh, the other faction, yeah, the other narrative is uh, Mullah Biradar and uh, some other people uh, who say that it was uh, the uh, Doha deal which gave us ascendancy, political ascendancy, legitimacy, uh, and we, uh, we were enabled to sort of uh, expand our political uh, cause uh, because of the Doha deal. So they, they say we should implement some Doha, part of Doha deal, some inclusivity, some uh, space, giving space to others, non-Talibans. But so far, this group is weak. The second narrative and the first narrative is dominating. And that has really deprived Taliban regime from technocracy and bureaucracy. They say, uh, they, they, their senior leaders say that uh, the people who have served in the previous government in the first four uh, levels, mm -hmm. bureaucracy, four top levels of bureaucracy, none of them will be given uh, uh, role in this new administration. So they're practically depriving themselves of this technocracy and bureaucracy. So, so they, they, they don't have the know-how to uh, govern. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they know only the only thing that they know is uh, the gun, looking to the barrel of the gun. You, you also, you, you talk about, you, in essence, you make a distinction between the so-called diplomats of the Taliban, which were the people who were sitting in Doha, uh, and then the hardcore uh, fundamentalist radical uh, group within the Taliban. And then you also mentioned the Haqqani network. How distinct is the Haqqani network and this radical group? Uh, because it seems very strange for, 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 for people to know is that uh, a person like Sirajuddin Haqqani is on, a, on, 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 on international designated terrorist list and today is the interior minister of, of Afghanistan. So how is this struggle? And, and then we also knew that during the time that this government was formed, during the time that there was an attack on the Panjshir Valley um, and during the time that Haqqanis were being inducted and, and, and having this power play, uh, the previous chief of the ISI, uh, Faz Hamid, was also at that time in Kabul. So how do you connect all this? You see, uh, Haqqani Network uh, is uh, the closest uh, ally of Pakistani military establishment. Uh, the elder Haqqani, Sirajun Haqqani's uh, father, uh, he came to Pakistan in 1974 far before uh, the Soviet uh, army came to Afghanistan, far before even PDPA's power. It was under Daoud Khan that he uh, revolted and he came to um, Pakistan, Jalaluddin Haqqani, Sirajuddin Haqqani's father. So, and they, they have been living in Pakistan. Most of their uh, brothers, I mean, they have been born here and they've been uh, growing up in Pakistan. So socialized in Pakistan, they have huge interests. They have investments here. They have property, real estate. 
uh, right in Islamabad, in Rawalpindi, uh, in, let alone Waziristan and other places where they are based. So they, they are very closely connected. But you see, uh, in recent years, uh, they, they have become part of uh, Taliban organization. Uh, and it has uh, increased Pakistan's influence in the Taliban structure as a whole. Because traditional Taliban are mostly from uh, Kandahar, at the greater Kandahar, as we call it, uh, the southwest of Afghanistan. Um, uh, most of the Taliban uh, leaders come from that area, the prominent leaders, uh, our military commanders. Uh, but the, uh, the Haqqanis, they come from... Uh, uh, Paktia province, which is uh, uh, southeast uh, of Afghanistan. And uh, uh, they, of course, uh, have uh, had the mo most, uh, uh, the bulk of resources of for war were given to them, always given to them. And they had the best of relations with Al-Qaeda. So, so a, a, they were sort of a link between Al-Qaeda and Taliban, there were a link between Al-Qaeda and uh, no, there will be a link between uh, Taliban and Pakistani military, uh, particularly intelligence agencies. So you see, they, 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 they are a very vital link in this whole uh, connection. So uh, this uh, traditional uh, Taliban leaders uh, from Kandahar, Great Kandahar area, they sort of, uh, uh, they are also dependent on Pakistan. I'm not saying that they, they uh, sort of uh, were in another country, but they made some effort to uh, be recognized uh, beyond being Pakistani proteges or Pakistani puppets. Uh, so they, they sort of uh, were very keen to uh, establish uh, a separate identity. But uh, you see, before uh, in, in this, uh, when Kabul was being uh, uh, invaded by Taliban, you see, the Haqqani network captured Kabul, Kabul city. Even today, it is administered by uh, Haqqani network. And this is one of the grievances of uh, this Mullah brother faction. They think Kabul as capital should be, uh, should be uh, sort of run or organized uh, or managed by uh, Taliban's main body from Kandahar. You see, that, that is, but, but you see, that, that, it's not for the first time. Even in 1992, when uh, Afghan Mujahideen were uh, coming uh, from uh, Peshawar, uh, uh, Pindi to Kabul for taking over, uh, Ahmad Shah Masood uh, had some uh, arrangements with uh, some elements of the PDPA. And this, uh, uh, Dostum, General Dostum, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, part of uh, faction of Babra Karmal, they, they sort of entered into an alliance and they overthrew uh, Dr. Najibullah's uh, government. And before these uh, Mujahideen or made in Pakistan government could reach, Masood and his allies were sort of uh, controlling Kabul. Uh, so these Mujahideen were faced with the fiat company. Mm -hmm. the, similarly, the Taliban, when the Quetta uh, Shura, which came via Kandahar, when they reached Kabul, Kabul was already taken over by Haqqanis. Uh, so this was also a fait accompli. So do you see uh, at some point of time uh, uh, an infighting between the Taliban and the Haqqanis or will they reconcile with how it is now and with this fait accompli? You see, uh, the, the visit of by Pakistani uh, ISI former DG, uh, General Faiz Hamid, was in this connection. 
because there, there was a physical clash between the two factions of Taliban in the president house uh, and these issues, the issues that I mentioned. And uh, uh, you see, uh, had this uh, interference not been there, Mullah Biradar might have become uh, the prime minister. Uh, you see this uh, uh, Mullah Hassan, who is the present prime minister, is very uh, recluse. Uh, he is not interfering. You haven't heard his statements. He 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 is not delivered any speech. Uh, so uh, the show is run practically by Hakanis. So this prime minister works for for them. <laughs> uh, Mullah brother could have been a different uh, commodity. So the show is pr uh, run by the Hakanis and yes, in 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 essence, run by Rahul Bindi. Yes, so so you see, so 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 that's that's what will make this government more unpopular. Yeah, uh, this regime, uh, the so-called Taliban's uh, the government, will become more uh, unpopular with the passage of day, more non-inclusive, more exclusive. But do the Afghans like they saw the American invasion of Afghanistan as foreign occupation? Do they see this? Uh, running the show, as you call it, by the Haqqanis as foreign occupation? Yes, I think, uh, uh, according to my estimate, majority of Afghans uh, are uh, not happy about, uh, over it. And the way they are fleeing the country uh, is an indicator. Uh, you see, uh, Taliban's were entering, were capturing city after city militarily. But you didn't see uh, a single public uh, demonstration in their favor. Mm. Because, because I said it was without Shenfin, IRA, <laughs> without Shenfin. And they, they, uh, you see, they, they, did, they do not have political capital. They do not have political capital. The only capital that they uh, could gain was in Doha. And it was uh, given to them by US uh, and Pakistani patronage. Uh, U.S. Uh, sort of giving uh, give, by giving some space and Pakistani support, they, they, were, they were able to have this. Uh, of course, right, Russia and China also jumped at the opportunity because for them uh, to see uh, American forces leaving Afghanistan was a prime target. Physically leaving Afghanistan. And if we come to that geopolitical situation a bit more, you have also written that uh, Chinese, you actually also said it here that Chinese investments uh, in, in Pakistan are actually loans which have to be paid back. I remember reading somewhere that you actually wrote that these are debt traps uh, of, of, of the Chinese for the Pakistanis. How do you see these big projects uh, developing with this instability in the region? No, I, I think uh, I, I didn't say that it is a debt trap. What I, 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 I want to explain is this. You see, Chinese investing in, investment in Pakistan, I don't think it's bad for Pakistan because uh, no one is uh, investing in Pakistani infrastructure. Uh, for, for example, Pakistani power sector. Uh, six years ago, Pakistan was uh, facing a great shortage of uh, power, yeah. but not anymore. We still have problems of distribution system, but generation has reached uh, where uh, it fulfills Pakistan's requirement. Similarly, Pakistan's trade connections, etc. You see, the Western uh, 
uh, assistance for Pakistan was mostly for military. In, in the past, Pakistan, Chinese assistance was also in the past for military. But with CPAC, it has come to civilian, uh, particularly infrastructure. Uh, but of course, uh, we, we still have questions about uh, uh, some explanation about certain projects and the priorities that Pakistani ruling uh, circles have adopted towards CPAC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And particularly uh, the way it is dominated by the most populous province, that is the Punjab. M most of it has gone to Punjab. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, even a, a rail network in Lahore city uh, is built uh, from the funds uh, of CPAC, which is supposed to go to Gawadar, Baluchistan. And Gawadar doesn't have uh, water, <laughs> drinking water. <laughs> So it's very un unevenly distributed. Yes, yes, yes. The profits yes. go to Punjab and the resources are taken from the other provinces. From the country. And the whole country will have to pay the debts ultimately. You see, exactly. for two tribal areas. You talk about this, the, 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 you said about uh, loans. And you say that currently these, invest, these loans of, 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 uh, of China are in some way benefiting the local population in terms of power and electricity. Um, but two questions, how will the future generations of Pakistan pay these loans back if Pakistan continues on the current trajectory? Second is, are you afraid that things like which happened in Sri Lanka and in places in Africa where these Chinese loans could not be paid back. And then at some point of time, these countries had to hand over parts of their sovereignty. Is, is that a fear you have? You see, uh, China or no China, Pakistan has to grow out of geostrategic and Pakistan has to step in geoeconomic. Mm -hmm. That is the only option left for Pakistan. If Pakistan continues to uh, get bogged down, get stuck in uh, this uh, geostrategic uh, with militarization, is China or American aid or any uh, sort of support will fire back because it, it, it will be used in non-productive sectors, uh, not in education, not in human development. What we need is human development. We need uh, investment in education. This is, of course, what needs to happen. Do you think it will grow out of this? Do you think it will happen? You see, uh, it, it is very difficult to confidently say that it will because of our history, because of our uh, even current uh, situation where we, we, you see, we have a hybrid system. Uh, it's uh, controlled by military. Uh, they, they haven't let any prime minister to complete uh, his or her tenure uh, or her constitutional uh, term, uh, they have been uh, uh, sacked or removed or overthrown uh, by military uh, generals uh, in 70s, 80s, 90s. Even now, we, we, we are witnessing, uh, I think uh, Imran Khan is on his way out. I can see him uh, leaving uh, the scene uh, because he was used, but he, he is becoming uh, a liability. He's not anymore an asset, so he will be probably removed. So th th this is the fact, but it's, it's quite a bleak situation in that sense. 
particularly after 2014, we have been uh, experiencing uh, a, an unannounced martial law. Uh, you see, the fundamental uh, freedoms have shrunk. Uh, particularly, media is very uh, strongly controlled. Uh, political parties are manipulated, uh, blackmail, uh, and this accountability law is used for political engineering, etc. Et but having said this, I also want to add that I can see uh, a major uh, change in Pakistan for the first time. Uh, there is a growing awareness among uh, people of Punjab from where most of the military comes. People in Punjab are realizing that this will not work. And they have uh, uh, a leader, Mr. Nawaz Sharif. He is the uh, very authentic leader of Punjabi businessmen. Hmm. Uh, uh, Punjab's national bourgeoisie, if you use <laughs> the, the Marxist term, uh, uh, national bourgeoisie. And, and then uh, he is confronting bureaucratic bourgeoisie. You see, the generals are also now a class. Mm -hmm. But, but this Nawaz Sharif's uh, class, the class that he's leading, uh, and, and now he is in the forefront of uh, struggle against uh, generals. In the past, it would be uh, leaders from the smaller provinces, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, Hoshbach yeah. Pizinjo, and they would be immediately labeled as Indian agents. They would be immediately agents, uh, Afghan agents, etc., etc. But it's very difficult to label Mr. Nawaz Sharif. Because he was a product of the military. Product community, then he is president of Muslim League, Mr. Jinnah's party. Mm -hmm. Then he is Punjabi. Yeah. Then, then you see, it, it's not possible for military to shoot people, kill people in Punjab. They, they can't do this. The things that they can do, for example, in uh, federally administered tribal area in Pakhtunkhwa province or in Baluchistan, they, they can't do this in uh, uh, Punjab. So, so there is awareness. Uh, secondly, the social media is also is also making a difference. Uh, you see, they have controlled televisions, they have controlled uh, newspapers, but they have failed so far to control social media. Although they have uh, tried, tried, and they're still trying. I mean, they, they abducted people, people who have uh, disappeared uh, to teach a lesson. But there are millions of people. Yeah, they can't uh, disappear. Millions. I mean. So, so, so th there is uh, some hope in this uh, struggle, democratic struggle uh, uh, in, in Pakistan uh, that they, that may change because otherwise, uh, you see, this militarized Pakistan has no future. Unfortunately, that that would be uh, sort of uh, you know, this country will be led to implosion. It will lead to destruction, self destruction, uh, uh, rather than any foreign invasion. Hmm. Uh, see, it, 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 it has more in internal problems than foreign threats. Um, yeah, we slowly, slowly, we're coming to the end of this interview. There are a few questions I still would like to ask you. One is, of course, you talk about Nawaz Sharif maybe turning out to be the torchbearer of democracy. Um, and and do you think it's, it's possible or should it happen that then all these Doge bearers of democracy, whether big or small, like you have the PTM, uh, the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, then you have the, you also have the People's Party, then you, sh can they do this without joining hands, the military, uh, defeat this 
military mindset in Pakistan? Can they do it alone? You see, Pashtun Tahfuz movement uh, is uh, unique. It is. Uh, it can't be compared with the other political parties because it's a, it's a very genuine grassroots movement, very authentic people's movement. And it is uh, a struggle uh, against war also, anti-war and uh, for uh, human rights of Pashtuns in these areas, uh, which, was, which are very close to the Dune line and uh, which were used for this Afghan war for, during the last four decades. Uh, I mean, uh, Pakistani military operations uh, also were focused in this area. Uh, so they were attacked by terrorists and they were also they suffered in military operations. Uh, you see, so 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 Pashtun Tafas movement uh, rose from that area, and it broke the uh, fear of uh, criticizing the generals at a time when nobody, even Nawaz Sharif, was not doing it at that time. So they were the first one. But then later on, uh, Mr. Nawaz Sharif uh, also uh, used strong language and very clear uh, uh, criticism of the military's leadership uh, uh, on the basis of their control of the state system and resources and uh, sort of uh, stopping democratic process. So there, there is uh, some, but I agree with you. I, I mean, no party can do it alone. It has to be a joint effort. So far, the military has been able to divide them. You see, they, they, they sort of, uh, they have baits uh, of offering powers to one party at the expense of the other. And they, they've been doing it. They, they're quite expert in this because political engineering has been one of their pet uh, projects also internally. Uh, so, uh, they, 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 so, but I, I see some uh, recent, in recent uh, days, I mean, even uh, this week, uh, I've seen growing unity uh, particularly among the two major parties, uh, that is uh, Nawaz Sharif's Pakistan Muslim League and Pakistan People's Party, led by uh, Bilal Bhutto Zardari, uh, the son of Benazir Bhutto. Uh, so, uh, the, in parliament, we have started cooperating. You see, today, uh, as we, we are talking, I don't know when, when, when will this interview uh, uh, be broadcasted, but uh, uh, to, tomorrow uh, there was supposed to be a joint session convened by the ruling party led by Mr. Imran Khan. But since yesterday, his parliamentary party was defeated twice in one day in the National Assembly, mm. twice uh, on legislation. Mm. So today, it uh, first uh, Imran Khan, earlier in the day, he uh, addressed his uh, parliamentarians, his, his party's parliamentary party, and asked them to go to the uh, joint session tomorrow, like uh, taking part in jihad. These were his words today. But after a few hours, uh, this uh, session, tomorrow's session is canceled because of the, uh, because they're not confident that they will be able to have majority in the assembly. Uh, it's, so it, it shows some uh, strength of the opposition parties getting closer, uh, uh, closing the ranks. That has happened earlier as well. And then, you know, of course, one yes. needs to be hopeful. It has happened earlier as well. And then, of course, uh, Motorma Benazir Bhutto was attacked and killed. And then it uh, didn't went as, as planned. So these things... Yeah, she, she was a great leader. I, I, I knew her. Uh, I had the honor of uh, knowing her and working with her for some time in opposition. 
Uh, I, I met her a few days before her uh, death. Uh, I remember uh, when she was uh, freed after uh, Musharraf uh, had kept her uh, in detention in one of uh, her colleagues' house uh, in Lahore. Uh, Asma Jangir and I went to see her and we had a prolonged discussion with her and uh, we were leaving. Uh, she uh, told me, she said, Mr. Khatak, isn't it very sad that we are discussing the same problems that you used to discuss 15 years ago <laughs> because these, these problems are unresolved. Yeah, I said, yes, it is very sad. But let's hope, I said, the new generation, the younger generation probably will do better than us. So you see, she, she was really a very inspirational uh, leader, uh, but unfortunately she was killed by terrorists. No, I had, I had the honor of meeting her as well in, in, in London. Um, and this brings me to my next question. Um, Mr. Khatak, forgive me for asking this question. It might be a bit, uh, I don't want to be um, in any way disrespectful, but how is it that a person like you who criticizes and who speaks the truth and who speaks truth to power um, in a very dangerous place like, like Pakistan, uh, where people have been disappeared, kidnapped, killed, interrogated, jailed for far less. How is it that you are still alive? Yes, uh, that's, that's a good question. No, no, I, that's a good question and uh, very, very logical in, in view of things uh, happening in, a, in our country. You see, I also faced uh, threats. Uh, I, I have been uh, in prison for more than five years. I have faced physical torture uh, in a very uh, difficult ways. Uh, in 1970s, even at a very young age, uh, I was uh, I had to be hospitalized because uh, from in prison I was in very bad shape, uh, and uh, not just that. In recent years, uh, in two thousand eight, uh, just before elections, uh, I, I survived a suicide attack. Uh, a suicide bomber entered uh, into a public meeting, which I was uh, supposed to address after a little while. Uh, it, it was in Charsada. A district uh, where my party's uh, president, uh, Asfandiyar Wali Khan, was uh, contesting elections. I was campaigning for him. And uh, he was advised by the government that he, there was a threat to him. So I went to the, that place and I addressed the meeting and the suicide bomber entered and he tried to reach me. He was uh, stopped uh, a few meters away from me and he exploded himself. And it was a terrible experience. Uh, 29 people died in this explosion around me. And uh, my, my right ear, <laughs> uh, you see, after a little while, it stopped hearing. <laughs> and, and I could see people uh, killed and injured. And so uh, apart from it, there were other incidents for the, the incident in which we, the, the, at the time that we, we were uh, going to meet uh, Akbar Bukhti, mm. our car was fired upon. Yeah, you said that. We, we, yeah, we spent the night. Uh, and even recently, very recently, uh, one uh, uh, TTP leader uh, who, uh, who was uh, very notorious, uh, Mr. Asanullah Hassan, uh, who was uh, supposed to have surrendered to military in 2017 and remained three years with military. 
and then he was he's supposed again to have escaped so from wherever he is he he said that he was given a list of people uh, uh, a straight kill list okay. and uh, my name was a part of that list uh, most of them were ptm leaders uh, but also uh, people like uh, Mr. Farhatullah Babur, uh, People's Party leader, outspoken leader, democratic, consistent, uh, determined democrat. So these lists have been there and National Assembly's Committee for Human Rights is still uh, inquiring into this list. Mm. And I have appeared uh, in the National Assembly's Committee uh, for this investigation, this kill list. Even UN uh, five uh, reporters, special reporters, UN reporters of Human Rights Council uh, wrote a letter to Pakistani government in uh, probably in 2019. Yes, uh, it talked of a state kill list of 18 people, in which three were uh, female uh, women activists and 15 were male activists. So we we have these things, but you see. Uh, uh, in this age, uh, now I've crossed 70, uh, I, I remember uh, our leader, Abdul Wali Khan, a very outstanding leader. He was a freedom fighter against Britishers, and then he was a Democrat uh, fighting for democracy in Pakistan, federal democratic system. He used to say he had similar problems. Uh, he used to laugh when you used to tell him that you should be careful. He, he used to say, but the average age in our country is 60 years. I have crossed 70, so I am living in bonus. <laughs> so uh, that's how we console ourselves. Yeah. So uh, let, let's hope, I mean, uh, as long as uh, we are alive, I think, uh, uh, we, we, I, I think we should stand for uh, truth. Uh, that, that, that is uh, our human duty. No, that's a very uh, admirable and, and, and courageous, uh, I would say, stand you have to stand like you say it's it's for it's it's your human duty it's your human duty yes and i i had to go live in exile for eight and a half years because again under ziaulak martial i had a similar threat to my life and that, that that's what i made me live in exile for eight and a half years and and both of my, my children were born in afghanistan and and i and and i'm like you have said you are confident that the Afghan people will also uh, stand for the truth and, and, and consider this as this as their human duty to stand they, against. They, they definitely will. I remember uh, in 1980s, uh, President Najibullah used to say that uh, they have a, a glorious history fighting for freedom, but they have a difficult geography. Mm -hmm. Afghanistan has a difficult geography, and this difficult geography has uh, attracted uh, but Afghans are survivors. They, they are uh, very resilient people. They have survived uh, right from uh, Alexander the Great to <laughs> Chinggis Khan, to Babur, uh, and to many others. Uh, and the recent powers, we have seen Soviet forces invading Afghanistan, American forces. Pakistan has been, been very busy. In, uh, so, But Afghans uh, are really survivors, I'm sure. Uh, they will uh, assert themselves and they will uh, remain independent uh, in their own country. I think that's the best line to end this interview on. A very hopeful line from you. Uh, Afra Saab Khatak Saab, thank you very much for talking to us. 
and we hope that uh, this this will not be a one off and then soon in the future we can have you again on on anything uh, which is relevant to the to the region you have a vast knowledge on on afghanistan and and on pakistan and there are so many issues which we haven't discussed and which i hope we can do the next time which is of course the issue of the drug trade in the region um the 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 menace that has 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 not only swept uh, afghanistan but also iran and in recent days also kashmir uh, the drug and the heroin trade uh, the second the, the another point which we would like to discuss with you again the next time is of course you 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 mentioned it relations of pakistan with india uh, that peace uh, in a, in essence peace with india will also benefit pakistan and help in the democratization of the society and institutional uh, over there so that's another topic there are so many topics there and i hope we, you you can talk to us another time on these topics then 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 we can learn from that as well thank you very much for having me thank you thank you sir thank you good night